Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is post-production engineer and co-founder of Source Connect, Robert Marshall. Today we're going to talk about the NAM show. Yes, the 2019 Winter NAM just finished, and it was interesting in a lot of ways, not so much with new gear, although there was some that kind of stood out, but mostly just the overall picture of the NAM show. First of all, I did a keynote address along with Al Schmidt, mastering engineer Pete Dell, Doug DeAngelis, Jack Joseph Puig, and David Schwartz. And this was for the A3E subconference. Basically, there were several conferences within a conference at NAMM show. One was the A3E. And the other one was AES at NAMM, of which I was a program director for the studio sessions. So we'll talk more about that in a little bit. One of the problems with AES at NAM, at least for me, is the fact that it takes up a lot of my time. So I was at NAM for three days and basically only had one day or really less than one day to go out and see everything, unfortunately. I gave a presentation there, but also, since I was the program director, I introduced a lot of great, great engineers and presenters. One good one was Mastering for the Internet Age with Gavin Lurson and Ruben Cohen from Lurson Mastering. That was a whole lot of fun and very informative. Mixer Andrew Sheps gave a great presentation, What Comes Out of the Speakers. Sylvia Massey talked about microphones. She's on a quest to do the ultimate microphone book. And boy, she had a lot of great stuff. And of course, one of the best was the tribute to Jeff Emmerich by Bill Smith and Howard Massey. And that was very informative and a whole lot of fun as well. But the NAM show, in general, the mood was really good. It was upbeat. There was a lot of people there. Manufacturers were happy. Attendees were happy. You can tell the business seems to be good. So keep our fingers crossed that that goes for a while. Of course, the audio exhibits have changed. They used to be in Hall A, and now most of them have moved over to the brand new North Hall, of which there are two levels. The lower level has Avid and most of the big manufacturers, and that saw most of the action, but there's some cool things on the upper floor as well. Now, as a result, what ends up happening is everything ripples from that decision to move all those exhibitors. So Hall A now became the exhibit hall for a lot of lighting and a lot of sound reinforcement that used to be in the stadium dome behind the convention center. There's still audio in Hall A. Less of it. Uh, Universal Audio was one of the big ones that were there. But what we ended up seeing as a result was all of the manufacturers that used to be down in the basement in Hall E, many of those have moved up into the main hall. So Hall E used to be the mad hall for inventors, and we used to see all sorts of very cool new stuff, some of it which would not stand the test of time. And as a result, we wouldn't see them after a year or two, and some which would eventually catch on and move up into the main hall. There's less and less of that. It wasn't nearly as much fun. What we did see was a huge Chinese presence still. Even with the tariffs and with everything going with China, we still saw probably a bigger presence than ever before. The problem is you wonder what's going on since not many buyers were there. There's a lot of Chinese 
exhibitors that are sitting around talking to one another and not a lot of buyers. And they all seem to have the same product as well, which makes it even worse. So they had most of the downstairs Hall E, but there is also a lot of tone woods. So if you're going to build your own acoustic instrument, that was a place to go to buy tone woods. And we saw some new places like India, for instance. I never remember seeing vendors of tone woods coming from India, but in fact, they were there this time. So that was kind of an interesting change. Just an overall look at things. USB-C. Yeah, the little connector that really makes us crazy because we have to buy brand new adapters and docks and things like that. Well, that's here to stay. There was no big deal. You didn't see it displayed anywhere or there were no announcements. Hey, we have USB-C. There was none of that, but it just seemed to be everywhere. And all of the new digital products seem to be sporting USB-C. So time to get used to that because it looks like it's here forever. The other thing that I found interesting was the fact that the music that was at NAM didn't reflect the music that is on the charts or seems to be popular. There was a lot of funk, and I mean really good old-fashioned 60s, 70s funk that was there. There was just a lot of great, terrific music, more so than any time I can remember. There were fewer DJs, although there were some. There was a lot less electronic music, although, again, There was a lot of that, but there was less than other years. The whole DJ thing, we saw that again in Hall A. That seemed to be the land of lighting and sound reinforcement and DJs. And in Hall B, there was a big contingent of electronic instruments and just gear for EDM and dance music. Still, less than years before... And I think less emphasis. I think what we saw were major manufacturers that kind of dabbled in that are now out of it. And now we see dedicated manufacturers coming up into that that are really good and know their audience. So that's changed in a significant way. Another thing that was really evident was that in-ear monitors kind of exploded. There were more manufacturers with in-ear monitors than I've ever seen before or ever heard of. And these were just about everywhere. And it kind of makes you wonder, how many in-ear monitors can the market support? Well, we'll see. And I predict that will shake out in a year or two. But boy, they were all over the place. Another trend was smart load boxes. So I think we saw the Aux last year come out from Universal Audio, and there are a lot of other manufacturers that came out with similar products. Basically what that is, it's a amplifier load box with an amp or a cabinet simulator built in. So there's DSP in the load box, and that was a really big deal when Aux was first introduced, but now there's much competition in the marketplace. Another thing I saw a lot of was these see-through panels by a company called Airhush. And these were isolation panels that were basically made up of compressed air. So you had a number of these frames that you blew up with compressed air, and then they became their own little ISO world. It's a very interesting technology. I didn't get too much technical knowledge on what was going on. And there's not much on the web, as a matter of fact, about it. But they were all over the place. They seem to be effective. So look for that in the future. company is called Air Hush. There are a number of products that seem to be gathering a lot of interest. One was the Waves CLA Mix Hub. And what this is, is basically an SSL console, basically. It's all laid out for you. And it's laid out in Chris Lord Algae's preferred way of working. So that had a lot of interest going on. 
One of the cool little things that I saw was something called the D-Booster by Royer Labs. And if any of you use a cloud lifter, this was their version of the cloud lifter called D-Booster. They claim it sounds a whole lot better. I haven't tried it yet, but I can't wait to because right now you're listening to an SM7B through a cloud lifter. Another thing that really got a lot of attention was by... Mac DSP, and it was their APB16 programmable analog processor. So what this is, is basically analog compressors, EQs, delays, all that, in a box, a 1U 19-inch rack space box, and it's all programmable via plugins. So you really do get that analog sound because you're using analog electronics. It looks pretty cool. There was a lot of interest in it. But there was no price, no hard release date on it. It was kind of just towing the water out there. Another thing I heard an awful lot of was, and these are from some great mixers, some people I really trust their taste, especially their taste in audio. We're all talking about the IK Multimedia iLoud monitors. Yeah, they're little micro monitors, apparently There are many people that love them, not so much for mixing, but for listening to. Now, IK Multimedia came out with a bigger three-way set called the MTMs. No word on those yet, but again, the word on the micromonitors was love, love, love. So we'll see if that works as well. Immersive audio was another thing, and I heard this over and over from a lot of people that I trust that immersive audio is here to stay, and some people even said that, you know what, in five years from today, we're going to look back on stereo as something old-fashioned. There are many mixers that I know, A-list mixers, that are getting into this heavily. There are many record labels that are getting into this. I'm skeptical because, again, I went through the surround sound, SACD, DVD, audio disc days when we all thought that 5.1 sounded so good, and all we need to do is put it out there, and consumers would buy it, and they never did. So I'm wondering here about immersive audio. Immersive audio is completely different in the fact that you have a lot of speakers around you. The fact of the matter is, the way it's set up, the sound doesn't seem to be coming from any single one of them because of software. Software blends it around so everything is immersive. So it's a different way of mixing. It's a different way of approaching everything. And the people that are in it today are in it big time and they're really happy with it and they think that there's a big future. So look out for that. I'm not sure myself, but I think we'll see in the near future how that shakes out. A couple fashion things that I saw... Mohawks seem to be back. Boy, (laughs) there are a lot of Mohawks at NAMM. And hats. And I'm not talking about trucker hats, baseball hats. I'm talking about normal fashion chapeaus. Boy, there are a lot of those as well. I'm jumping around again. Forgive me, but I have some random notes that are here. One of the things that I saw that was interesting, and I think I mentioned this in New Music Gear Mondays on my blog earlier in the year, and this was uh, Flock analog patch bay it's a digitally controlled analog patch bay and a lot of people like that as well it seemed to be a really big hit so basically by db25s you plug in all of your analog outboard gear and then through your computer you can patch and repatch everything boy that's a lifesaver and everybody would really love something like this i think that's going to be the way of the future the other thing that was very cool ampeg of course is now part of yamaha yamaha purchased it 
and they had a very nice booth and a very nice layout. But one of the things they had out in the hallway of the Marriott was an 11-foot-high SVT that actually worked. It was 600 watts, and they would power that up every hour and shake the floor. I mean, they would shake everything with that. It was pretty amazing. 11-foot-high SVT. And finally, I met a very cool guy, Bob Berryhill from The Safaris. If you ever remember Wipeout, he was one of the co-writers and the guitar player. So that's a song that just about every guitar player and drummer learns early in their career. And for many of us, it was the very first song that we learned. And of course, we probably played it in our first garage bands as well. I don't know if people still do that today, but for many of us, and especially many of you listening, Bob Berryhill was the man behind all that. He's still out there playing with the safaris. It was really cool to meet him. By the way, that sound on Wipeout, it's a 62 Jazzmaster into a dual showman amplifier. So that's it. That's the NAMM show. You can go to many other places to look for details about some of the cooler new products, but this is just a nice overview. I think of some things that you don't hear many other people talking about. Each NAM show is different from the last in at least some way, and this one certainly was. But one can only hope that the vibe, which was so good this time, continues because it really means that the industry is strong, and if anything, it's getting stronger. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. My guest today is Robert Marshall who's a sound designer, mixer, and partner of Chicago Audio Post House, Some One. Robert has spent the last 15 years doing sound design, mixes, and ADR for film, television, and radio, including several Super Bowl spots. He's also a founding partner of Source Elements, a company that provides a number of excellent IP-based replacements for the ISDN services that have long been used by the voiceover industry for long-distance recording. In the interview, we talked about getting into post-production from music, the idea behind source elements and the different products offered, post-production in the Chicago commercial scene, the ideal amount of compression on voiceover, and much more. Robert and I spoke via Source Connect Now from a studio in Chicago. Well, let's go back to the beginning, Robert. Give me your background and how you got into the business. Oh, wow. Um, high school? <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's see. So the way it all began was I was writing songs and with my friend, we wanted to record an album. And so I, I ended up at a local recording studio because my friends had booked time at that recording studio and, um, they were recording and I was just, uh, you know, in awe of the whole process. And, and the stuff that I was doing was more MIDI oriented. Um, just the band that I was in was a little bit more sort of they might be giants like mm-hmm. and um they the band that was recording in this studio they had it was all just you know rock and roll drums bass guitar but they had one song that had like a sequence as a background and they were trying to lock the sequencer to a jh24 mci and they were having trouble and it wasn't working and then they all decided that they would 
um, just go get lunch. And the um, studio owner's like, if you want to sit here and keep on working on it, go ahead. So they were gone for like an hour or two, maybe. And by the time they got back, I had um, gotten that sequencer, I think it was Vision, to lock to the Simpty track that was in, um, you know, on the 24 track. And that was that. And from that acquaintance, I, I asked the, the guy who owned the studio if, like, you know, I could work there or intern there and worked out that I could intern there and, um, and uh, get some free time to record my band. So that's how it started as far as having uh, like a presence in studios. That was around sophomore or junior year in high school. Um, and I stayed working there or interning there until the point where you know, I did everything from, I learned how to solder <laughs> and did patch-based stuff for him and cleaned up a lot of junk and all the stuff that an intern would do and watched a lot of sessions. And then the owner of the studio was going to California and, you know, like, like when he was gone, I would just, you know, like, oh, this band, they want, they want a dub of this or these songs on cassette, whatever it was. And, um, and I was just, you know, managing taking phone calls and doing dubs and stupid crap while he was out. And then one day he's like, this band's coming in. They're going to do a vocal. This is the setup, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first session uh, doing a vocal overdub, which um, I didn't do so well because I don't think I matched up to the original um, track. Like whatever EQ and compression was going on to tape at the time, I didn't match it so well. So... At least that's what I was told. But whatever, got through the session, did the punches. That was my first session. And um, stayed working at that studio until he picked up the whole thing and went to California. And then did other internships um, between college and the end of college. So my first official gig out of, um, well, actually my first gig was selling like at, at a local music retailer called Gand and whatever, selling keyboards and actually a lot of software. I was officially in the software department, so I was selling Pro Tools systems, and by that time I had gotten to know Pro Tools exceedingly well, um, which was at that time Pro Tools. Well, college was Pro Tools version 201, and by the time I got out of college, it was Pro Tools 3, and that's right when all the TDM stuff hit. And um, so I knew Pro Tools really well, and I got a gig downtown Chicago at first as an Avid assistant, you know, like video editorial, they just an assistant between a company that had an Avid edi uh, video editorial room and a, um, like just a mixing room. And so that was the first time I saw video editorial systems and that was like, oh my God, I want to do this. <laughs> so yeah. forget music, this is really cool too. And, um, and that sort of put me in the just downtown Chicago corporate video commercial kind of stuff um one thing leads to another and i landed a gig at night at a recording studio doing like voiceover classes just basically manning the board and that eventually got me a gig like a permanent gig at that studio doing you know voiceover demos commercials uh, mainly local radio commercials and some like sorry mm-hmm <laughs> mainly local radio commercials and um, some TV commercials, but typically local stuff. Probably the biggest stuff I did was like uh, the Bulls for the Bulls 
I'm from Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so from there, essentially what happened was that was right when Pro Tools began to get a really good footing in the post industry. Um, it wasn't just seen as like the low cost alternative, but it was beginning to be seen as like the more creative solution. So a really big shop in town called Cutters had switched over from what was originally uh, audiophile, so Logic Neve uh, or AMS Neve audiophile with the Logic Board. I don't know uh, if you're familiar yeah, with those I systems. Remember. Yeah. Yep. So they were dumping all their Logic systems or their Neve um, audiophile Logic boards, and they put up Pro Tools rooms, and um, their first sessions didn't go so well <laughs> with one of their rooms because essentially what you had was you know, an engineer who spent his whole career on one system and then somewhere in between two weeks and a month was supposed to just do everything on Pro Tools, this new system. And obviously that's a lot to learn and whatnot. So um, I was initially hired in as an assistant, but mainly I was hired in because I was familiar with Pro Tools. And um, so that was, you know, that was all national TV, um, much like a whole whole echelon up as far as the you know the uh, food chain of commercial post and so um about a not even about a year later though i i was able to get my own room there because one person left they went to california left an opening and um and i'd already done a couple sessions there just for one reason or the other so i got a room and and then did lots of commercials <laughs> of which Probably, um, you know, the biggest ones, uh, if, if you remember the, uh, the Budweiser, like, what's that campaign? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, my, uh, the, the, the owner of the studio, John Bender, he, he got that, the overall gig, but there was a whole bunch of spots within that campaign. And I did a few, um, some of them went on to the Super Bowl. that helped a lot. <laughs> mm, I bet. Um, and so, one thing leads to another, and I basically ended up at Cutters for 15 years. Um, and um, in my time at Cutters, part of all those sessions was doing a whole lot of ISDN sessions. And, um, you know, after work, hanging out um, with the other engineers, with the owner of the studio, and kind of going like, you know, there's this thing called the internet, and um, it already works at way faster than 128K, which is what ISDN works at. Why can't we do these sessions over the internet? Because the other thing we always knew was that ISDN was exceedingly expensive. So yeah, yeah. Why not do the internet? And that was that was right around two thousand three, two thousand four, essentially. And um, I was annoying enough and kept on pushing the issue. And I did some proof of concepts. I showed that I could stream, you know, using QuickTime from Chicago to California reliably or fairly reliably over the internet and um essentially uh got them to consider making something like source connect essentially and then we um a lot of the the bids so to speak or just people that we talked to was crazy expensive as far as like how how much it was going to cost to develop something like that um and i had also had a number of friends who were um programmers one in particular that really just from his basement made an app and sold it and i i knew that just from his experience that like there's big software houses and 
writing software can be really, really expensive or it can just be time-consuming with the right person. And so through him, I met um, a very good friend of mine now, Rebecca, who is um, at this time now the owner of Source Elements. But at that time, we it was Rebecca, me, um, the, the ownership group. Sorry about the mic noises here. Yeah. The ownership group at Cutters and um, essentially got them to all, um, you know, we all pulled our money together and um, enough to create the alpha version of Source Connect. And, um, and then by, so that was 2004 roughly. And by 2005, we were able to create Source Connect version one. And, um, and then a long slog till now as far as like, you know, the, the early days of doing this over the internet, the internet was barely ready for it. So there's always all kinds of issues, dropouts, bandwidth, those kinds of things. But in time, certainly, obviously, the internet's becoming the preferred medium for uh, remote connections. You know, the first time I saw Source Connect, I went to visit a friend who was doing a mix for someone in, I want to say Taiwan, and they were using Source Connect for that. I was looking at this in awe, thinking, this is just incredible. He told me, you know, I use this all the time for all of my foreign clients, and it works great. So that was my first exposure to it. When, when, when was that? Like, what year? You know, it was probably five or six years ago. Okay. So yeah, it was fairly mature yeah. by, by that time. Yeah. yeah, it seemed like it was. When I look at on the Source Elements website now there's a lot of different products can you go through them personally i'm not sure what they all are and what they're for but talking to you a little bit i get the feeling that they're very specific products for very specific situations sure yeah so they they basically um the first product was source connect which was um you know bi-directional low latency streaming audio and one of the first things that came up with was, well, if I have Source Connect, what does the other person need? And the, and the different workflows were, there's, you know, what, what we call acquisition. So you're recording someone remotely. But the other, and, and for acquisition, you need bi-directional low latency audio. You're talking over the line, you're capturing directly. But the other workflow um, is sort of remote mixing. So you're doing a mix, your clients can't be there, but you want them to hear it in high quality. So the the second product that came out was called Source Live. And basically what that is is a one-direction, high-quality broadcast. So the first difference is that it can send audio to more than one person at the same time. It doesn't need to do a... Um, even with Source Connect, you have to do a, a conference call. It's, so even though it can handle more than one person, it's not really like a broadcast in a sense. So Source Live can broadcast what's coming out of your Pro Tools um, or any workstation for that matter. Um, to people listening in and they don't need to have Source Connect. All they need to have is a web browser and they can pick up the stream in very high quality um, and therefore you can get your mix approvals a lot faster than posting MP3s and waiting for someone to reply back, which I call pin the tail on the donkey. <laughs> sort of like there, there, like where do you want it? Yeah. Um, so that was the first uh, or the second product, I should say. Um, the other one was um, Source Talkback, which literally is just a console-style talkback switch done all in software. So you bring your mic into your workstation, typically Pro Tools. 
you um, route that to where you want it to go, headphones, maybe your remote connection, et cetera, et cetera, even slating within your, you know, like slating your track that you're recording onto. Um, and then it senses a keyboard key. Um, initially, it was the backslash key above the return key, but the newest version lets you assign that to any key, and you can use a MIDI event. And so the plugin doesn't have to be focused. The, the key will always open up your talkback channel. So, and it, there's a second plugin that comes with it that goes on your master fader, and that dims your master fader down. So you have your control room dim with your talkback, all the same stuff that a talkback system might have. For instance, it's got a feature for if you know automatically open when the Pro Tools transport stops, close it when the Pro Tools goes into, or when the transport goes into record or play. So that was source talkback. Um, That's clever. The next one was an application called Source Zip. Very handy. The way it came about was a lot of people were using Source Connect for ADR sessions. And so they would need to send the scratch, like the background tracks and everything else that the actor needs to listen to while they're um, you know, doing their, their, their takes. But you know, if, if the Pro Tools session is really big, that takes a long time to send, and really they don't need to have it full quality. So what Source Zip does is it takes a session, a DAW session, Pro Tools or whatever, and it takes all the audio files from it and it compresses them using AAC compression or Apple lossless. Um, so it knocks it down anywhere from, you know, easily five times smaller to the lossless compression typically is about half as big. And then the other side, it self-extracts. But when it self-extracts, all the metadata from those audio files get put back into the audio files. So that Pro Tools doesn't start saying, where's my audio? Mm, Pro Tools has no idea was crunched and re-expanded. So it was was basically a really fast way of moving sessions through the internet, especially if they're just needed for monitoring. Or another typical thing might be, say someone is um, like, hey, I I need you to retime all my drums and re-edit them and everything. So you can send someone that session and you can chop them up and edit everything as you need. And if you're not creating any new audio files, all you do is you send back that tiny little Pro Tools session or Logic, and it will reference back to those original audio files. That's awesome. Yeah, very cool. So that was sort of basically just a way of moving sessions around faster, smaller. Um, Funny enough, it became very popular in the Middle East, and we believe because there's just um, some countries charge for bandwidth, so it's not your unlimited internet connection, but if I got to upload a gig, oh my God, that's going to cost me whatever, $5. Oh, yeah. If I can upload 256 megs, it's going to cost me less. So there's a lot of users in the Middle East, actually, where source zip became very popular. And I actually used it for a long time um, when hard drive space wasn't as inexpensive and um, long-term archival for sessions. Just losslessly compress them. There they are. But the number of you know, workflows. Um, so the other product, let's see, Source Connect, Source Live, Source Talkback. The next one was Nexus, I guess. I forget the order. Um, but Nexus is really cool, actually. Um, and, the, and you're familiar with Soundflower. Yep. So think of Nexus as Soundflower with a plug-in endpoint. So now you don't need to mess with aggregate drivers or stuff like that. You can point an application at the Nexus driver and then the output of that application will show up on the plugin and you can capture it in Pro Tools or 
whatever workstation you're using, and vice versa. You can send audio out of your workstation to an external application that might not have a plugin. So effectively, Nexus turns any audio app into a plugin. Wow. So, so for instance, you want to listen to iTunes in Pro Tools. Boom. You just send, I mean, with, with iTunes, you just send your entire system audio to Nexus. You put the Nexus plugin in Pro Tools and boom, every system beep and iTunes is popping into your Pro Tools session. Um, but you, you could literally integrate Skype, um, anything like this with Source Connect Now, which is Chrome, uh, FaceTime, you name it. It'll, it'll let any of those applications patch into and or out of um, Pro Tools or any you know, AU or VST enabled workstation. Wow, that's very cool. Yeah, Nexus is very, very popular and um, very flexible. Does does a number of things that um, fits into a lot of workflows, especially with podcasting. I'm trying to think what other um, we have a V we have an, a system called VISDN, which basically, all these years later, it's kind of funny. Source Elements started out with, "Don't use ISDN, use the internet." <laughs> so now we have a system called VISDN, which essentially is a hardware box that we deliver to you and you plug your ISDN codec from 1985 into it and then you plug in the internet to our box and now your ISDN codec from 1985 can operate over the internet. Um, so it's an active service. We, we are providing, essentially the way to think of it is we are extending ISDN lines to you over the internet instead of using copper from the telephone company. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. And so that that's that's pretty new that's only about 2 years old but ISDN is um very it's uh it's been resilient as far as you know even though the phone companies want to kill it especially in the audio industry it it remains a um a mainstay of of you know doing sessions and connecting so um in the spirit of give them what they want <laughs> there's VISDN <laughs> um and other things oh yeah Source VC is literally sort of like Source Talkback. It's a control room volume controller. So um, you can put that on your master fader. You can control your volume with your your keyboard or with any MIDI event. The plugin doesn't need to be focused. Um, it can handle. The nice thing about it is that as new formats come out, so you know five one no problem, seven one no problem. As they keep on getting wider and wider. Uh, a much more efficient update to the plugin instead of all new hardware because I need twenty more input channels to my um, to my <laughs> whatever it is my dangerous or my advocate or whatever hardware controller you're using. So the idea with Source Talkback and Source VC is to sort of take all the hardware that you need and really make the whole system work as a desktop. You know, yeah. on your laptop, you got everything you need without any hardware. What do these cost, Robert? Um, so Source Talkback is one hundred twenty-five dollars. Source VC, I think, is one seventy-five. Mm-hmm. Um, Source Nexus. There's a free version which is called Source Nexus Free. What do you know? It's basically like Soundflower. It's the driver. Then the basic version of Source Nexus is one hundred twenty-five dollars, and it can send or receive, but it can't do full duplex. Um, Source Nexus Pro is two ninety five, and it can send and receive simultaneously, and it can do as many as twenty four channels, 
Um, there's another little um, plugin we, or application we have called Source Nexus Control, which lets you create as many drivers as you want. So then what you can do is set up, I want a driver for Skype, I want a driver for Chrome, I want a driver for the system audio, I want another driver for FaceTime, I want another driver for my sound effects application that I search with, whatever. And you can have all those applications facing their own individual driver, which then they can all come into Pro Tools or whatever your workstation is on individual faders because Nexus can see all those separate drivers. The other really slick thing, actually, I forgot about the new version of Nexus is that it can see any driver. So another popular thing is um, you have your Pro Tools HDX system and uh, you, you know, like Pro Tools HDX is very much locked into the HDX hardware, but you want to say, send your audio out to a small speaker system or something like that. Um, And a lot of Macs have HDMI built into them. So there's theoretically a surround sound output from your Mac. And you can then send that into an amplifier with, say, a consumer system, a consumer audio system. Um, So Nexus can literally, even though you have an HDX Pro Tools system, you can put Nexus on the channel and send audio straight out to, say, your HDMI output or any hardware or software audio driver present in that Mac. So you could have a small speaker that way, a small surround speaker that way. Um, So Source Nexus Pro is $295. Source Connect, there's a number of versions of that. So Source Connect now is essentially free. We'll probably come out with a subscription version that has some added features and whatnot. There will be a monthly subscription for that. Then the bottom version of the actual application Source Connect is Source Connect Standard. That one is $650 buyout, or it's available as a $35 a month subscription. Source Connect Pro is $1495. And, and there's a number of features in Source Connect Pro that basically it's designed for the recording studio side of the connection. So Source Connect Standard was more envisioned for your voice talent on the road in their home studio, maybe your smaller studios, especially the studios that are more geared for sending voice out. And then the side that's recording that uh, remote connection, Source Connect Pro was more uh, designed for that. And the reason why is that Source Connect has a whole system called Restore and Replace. So what Restore and Replace does is it, um, you're recording, say, take one, take two, take three, Take four has got to drop out. You do take five, take six. You go back to play take four, the dropout's gone because the auto-restore, auto-replace system is tracking all those audio files. When it sees an audio file that came from Source Connect, it looks for any dropouts. If it finds any dropouts, it goes to the remote system, says, give me that missing chunk of audio, and it stuffs it back into that audio file. Wow. Um, what Source Connect Pro can do if it's on both sides of the connection is you can... Um, do a session, do 50 takes, do 50,000 edits of your 50 takes, close your connection, go have lunch, and when you come back, the auto-replace system, so not just the restore, which fills in the missing chunks, but the replace system will go to that remote uh, system, get the uncompressed audio, and lay all that uncompressed audio in there conforming to all your edits. So even though you had a remote connection that was a lossy codec, you know, compressing and re-expanding the audio, in the end, what you've recorded and edited is lossless, which normally would have been a workflow where 
you know, you record the whole thing over ISDN. We saw this a lot with ADR, especially in, the, in like, um, you know, theatrical releases where they do the ADR session and, and then they have the remote studio send them an FTP of all the uncompressed audio. And then someone has to sit there and ear match all the edits Yeah, yeah, right. with the uncompressed audio. So essentially the restore and replace system just does that automatically. You can treat that streamed audio as the final audio and you just have to let the replace system, um, you know, take its time to download and match all those edits. Wow. And then the other thing that Source Connect Pro has is a transport locking system. So what would normally be done by streaming audio down one side of a stereo connection, sorry, streaming time code down one one side of a, a stereo connection so that you could lock the two systems together so you could do ADR and whatnot. Um, essentially, uh, we abused Rewire, you know, when yeah. we went to our programmers and we were trying to find ways to sync up. And I didn't, I didn't want to use MIDI because MIDI is just cumbersome and confusing and whatnot. So, um, what's, you know, what's built into every system and can handle transport. And, and I kept on looking at, you know, well, Hey, I can get Ableton to lock to Pro Tools using Rewire. And so, um, went to Rebecca and, the programmers that she was working with and said, why can't we use rewire? And they're like, well, it's designed to work inside the same computer. I'm like, so <laughs> yeah, yeah <right. laughs> make it work otherwise. And so they figured out how to basically make use rewire to be the common language in a sense between all these different workstations. So you can time lock a remote connection. If one side's using the Uendo and the other one's using pro tools or whatever, as long as the workstations all are rewire compliant, um, the remote transport sync system and source connect can lock them all together. This is very exciting. Yeah. And, that, and that's used for ADR. It's also used a lot for remote mixing. So um, the last version of source connect is source connect pro X, which um, it's main other features that it can do, you know, up to seven one currently, and that will expand um, connections. So you've got, um, you know, like they're mixing on a Hollywood stage but the director must be in Cape Cod. He's on vacation, but he wants to be in on the mix. So essentially hook up with Source Connect with a seven channel or eight channel connection, 7.1. And then the transport lock system will lock the local picture in Cape Cod to the streaming audio coming in from the stage. And um, they can sort of virtually be in on a, on a mix session. Or it's also used a lot for uh, scoring sessions. Um, I, I know that they used it for The Hobbit. Um, so Peter Jackson was in New Zealand, and the orchestra was in uh, London, and Air, at, I think it was Air Studios, and and they were doing the session with a 5-1 orchestra, even though it was monitoring still. <laughs> hmm. um, it was used for, so it's used for scoring, remote scoring, remote mixing, ADR. That's all the places where the transport lock comes into play. And so the Source Connect Pro X version is 2490. That's our most expensive product. This is also cool. I don't know much about any of this, and mostly because I don't do post, I guess. I'd be a lot more familiar had I been more into post, I guess. But there's lots of applications for mixing, though. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yes, absolutely. We're, we're actually working on a new, another remote system called Remote Overdub Sync, um, and that's still being baked. But the basic idea there is that... Um, We've done some music overdub uh, sessions using the remote transport lock. Um, some artists have used it, used it, 
But the kind of flaw with that workflow is that, especially if you're doing something like doubling a vocal, you get your first pass down and now you want to listen to your previous vocal while you sing another vocal, for, for example. Well, you got to get that newly tracked vocal onto the singer's system if you're relying on transport lock, because when you're transport locking, the only thing going across the internet is the vocal and talkback. But the singer or whoever it is that you're overdubbing, they manage their own headphone mix because oh. it's playback directly from their system. Yeah. Um, so the, the remote overdub sync idea is that you will be able to send whoever it is, their headphone mix. They hear it. They play against it. Their playing comes back to you it's inherently late, but the remote overdub sync system will take care of all that timing issue so that everyone hears it in sync. And in the end, it ends up on the timeline in sync, even though, you know, given the space time continuum, that's technically impossible. Still very cool. Boy, but I do want to go some other places besides source elements. For instance, someone, I want to hear about your post house. Oh, sure. So I was at, cutters in another country for 15 years and um gosh i mean just for a number of reasons you know you're, you're at one place and you just want to like what else is there for me and at the same time i had been talking with a friend of mine for many years who had always been saying you got to get out of there <laughs> <laughs> um and and i'd always been like you know i'm at the at the premier place in chicago like why would i leave i'm working 60 hours a week <laughs> so um we he he ended up with an option to um going going a little bit further back some a number of movies were done in chicago um transformers the dark knight um a number of big movies were done in chicago and so a company had come in and built a 40 seat dolby certified theater in this building and um Several years later, this, that and, and, and they used that theater to um, to screen the dailies that were being shot. I think, you know, legend has it that they did a lot of the Dark Knight uh, editorial in that same place. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, a number of years later, they like that business had dried up, and the, they they just left it. This beautifully, really beautifully built theater. I mean, you, you wouldn't believe it. Forty seat Dolby certified theater and. Um, so my friend's like, hey, I can, I, can, um, I can pick up the lease on this. And at the same time, a friend of mine who was running another one of the rooms at, um, at, um, at Cutters, we were, you know, he was also feeling that he'd been there for a long time and what's next and all this. And so we all met and one thing leads to another and we're like, let's band together. I mean, the biggest cost of starting your own post house was basically taken care of, which was the build out. So... Um, we decided to leave and pick up that lease and start someone. And um, we did that. We At that place, we, we picked up the rest of that lease, and we had, I think, three or four years. And then the building went residential. And mm. We couldn't get our lease extended. And so I actually dismantled that whole theater. I mean, wow, the whole ceiling was all bass trapping. Huh. Like, the kind of hanging bass traps with 703 yeah it just sort of swing you know what i'm talking about hemholtz resonators um, yeah well it wasn't a hemholtz resonator because it's just like kind of a broadband like just like it's sitting on a not a chain but a rope it's just like a 
Um, so like the bass hits it and kind of makes it swing a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the whole ceiling was that actually. <laughs> I pulled so much 703 out of that place. It was, it was like raining yellow. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I took a few years off my life. Like, cause the mask didn't stay on my face <laughs> after a while. Um, but we, we pulled all that out and actually used a lot of that for the build at someone. And we just had to find a new place. And so we decided to, um, what basically ended up happening is that we were, you know, still doing TV commercials. And so the ad agencies would come over and, you know, there's me and my assistant and four or six people from the ad agency sitting in this huge theater and they would hear it once or twice on these gigantic JBLs and they'd be like, great, let's hear it on the small speakers. <laughs> so the, the giant theater didn't really apply for the, um, the, you know, commercial workflow that, that was our primary, um, you know, bread and butter. Um, and we were paying the lease for that huge space and whatnot. So when we lost the lease, we decided to move closer to our clients and with less space which the per square foot rate went up, but we were basically across the street from our clients at that point and with a room that's more appropriately sized for a commercial post. So we have two rooms and two booths, and um, but we designed our second room, which is very small, as a booth. So if we had to, we could have one control room with three booths or two control rooms with two booths or one control room with two booths and one control room with no booths it's fairly flexible in the way it's designed so that we can handle a fair amount of uh, local voice talent and, and sessions with clients as well do you find that you're mixing more or doing adr or a combination how does that work for you um mainly sound design oh. so sound design and um mixing not a lot of adr that's um at least in Chicago, a lot of the ADR is done. There's a there's a lot now just out outside of the city, so I think a lot of it's done there. And there's some other places that are um, just have picked up more of the clientele for doing um, you know feature film ADR. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly could do could do that, but just not what we've focused on at someone. And and mainly what we do at someone is TV, radio, commercials. You know, mm-hmm. and. Um, so and that basically is sound design, voice recording, and and mixing. That's pretty much what it is. Okay, let me ask you a question. When I was a young engineer and I first moved to Los Angeles, I filled in for a friend that was at a post house specializing in voiceovers for commercials, radio commercials for the most part, some TV. And he went on vacation, so I did it for two weeks. And before he left. He gave me instructions. He said, okay, when you do a voiceover and this DBX compressor here, this 160X, make sure there's 6 dB of compression. No more, no less. Okay, that's what I'll do. Yeah, I, I go I go mic preamp straight in, mic preamp to converter, and do all the compression afterwards. Oh, that was my question. I knew it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I somehow knew it, yeah. I mean, we, we do have a drummer. I forget what it is, like a... It's actually great. Like I gotta say, the drummer compressor is really nice. So if you're doing some voiceover where the person's being really dynamic, or or something like that, and you want to protect yourself, put a little compression on it ahead of ahead of the A to D. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really just to sort of little insurance policy in a sense. Um, my general opinion is that rather do all of that later, 
um, it seems to me that the converters are getting exceedingly transparent now. And really, when you think about it with 24-bit compared to 16-bit, you know, besides the analog noise floor, really, in theory, you could record at minus 48 into a 24-bit converter and have the same resolution as 16-bit. So there's so much headroom in 24-bit. You know, you're, the main thing, I mean, 24-bit pretty much exceeds the, the analog circuits as far as noise floors go. So, yeah, my opinion is don't commit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you're mixing, though, how much compression would you usually add? Depends on the spot, but I try to keep it maybe at around, to me, as soon as you get past like three decibels, you're getting into like heavy compression. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll usually do something around a three to one ratio, maybe four to one, like starting approaching more limiting like, mm-hmm. and just try to bring up those, like like the main reason for, for doing the compression is is you've got... You know, you've got a spot where you've got a fairly active music track and people want that want it to be really music-driven, but at the same time, you need to hear the voiceover. So to sort of, um, you know, clamp down on the, on the bigger transients so that the ends of the words are still clear. When, when the compressor releases, then, then there's your volume because you've you know, added a little bit of makeup gain to it. So um, mainly it's just to make sure that that voice is floating to the top no matter what mm-hmm. um but three six not much not more than that yeah yeah okay for sure what don't people know about what you do how like don't believe any like you know like how much editing there is down to the syllables you know like words are spliced in half and you're like the beginning of this word the end of that word a lot of the times there's there's a lot of Fine-tune editing. What don't people know? I, I that I'm the the sil the those syllables and on a lot of like um, you know probably no one should know this, but for <laughs> instance, they hire a voice actor and then later the copy changes. Ah, yeah. So here, so so here's a crazy session. They wrote the copy as something 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 at the end of the 19th century, but it was really supposed to be the end of the 18th century. Like they got their centuries wrong. It was a thing for a museum. So they catch this. Voiceover's long gone. Like voiceover's done probably like a day or two ago. But now we're doing the final tweaks and um, someone caught this copy problem and this spot has to ship. So we're trying to turn 18 into 19. And literally what we did is we called around the office and said, I think, I think Lizzie sounds like that voiceover person. Get Lizzie in the booth. Say, in the 19th century, 20 times. And just grab that nine <laughs> and slip it into where the eight was. And like a little bit of pitch shifting, a little bit of whatever you got to do to shoehorn it in there. EQ, pitch shifting, and whatnot. And um, turn the eight into a nine. And, and the voiceover person never, ever read nine, but... Different wow. person for one syllable. That's a good trick. Um, yeah, it's happened a number of times actually, and I've you know certainly way easier on consonants. I've certainly been lots of people's p's and t's and things that get dropped off, but when it's a vowel, um, that is way harder to pull off because there's you know the the formant and the 
sort of the character of the person's voice is captured in that vowel. So how to, um, you know, fit it in there and make it not sound like somebody else for a moment. How fast do you turn a commercial around? If it's just voice and music? Yeah. Two hours. Wow. That's fast. Yeah. I mean, probably, you know, like record the voice for an hour at, at the most, you know, maybe the voice record. If it's just like a 30, should be able to capture the voice in somewhere between, you know, 15 minutes to 45 minutes. Um, usually if you're doing a real-time voice record, you get most of your edit done right then and there because they don't want to necessarily release the talent until they know that they've got everything that they want. So you're kind of recording and editing as you go. And then um, talent's gone and and mix it, essentially. That takes, you know, voice and music 30 seconds. Get that done in a half hour easily. Um, so the whole thing, you can do a voice and music spot in two hours. What What takes longer is all the indecision to follow. Um, <laughs> so, you know, send it to the client and then the client's like, well, is there a take with more energy? Mm, yeah. Well, there is. So, so you, you know, well, they want more energy on this word or that word and this and that. Um, and so the, the tweaks usually take longer than the, than the, than the guts of getting, you know, the main work done. If, if, if all the decision makers were there in the session at the same time and everyone was, sort of on it and, and no one was scared of, for instance, the voice record sessions also go a lot quicker too, because they have to capture it with this energy, but then they have to capture it again with a lot more energy, just in case someone asks for that. Mm, yeah. So if everyone knew exactly what they wanted right then and there, I mean, man, in theory, probably do a spot in an hour. Back when I was doing jingles, I didn't do all that many, but it was a three hour turn where the first hour was music and the second hour was vocal overdubs and then the third hour is mixing. And it was absolutely terrifying to do everything that quickly, but it was exhilarating at the same time. And, you know, you just don't get that in any other way, any other situation. That That is one of the coolest things about post-production. Um, for instance, even when, when I was, that, that session where I was trying to switch the eight for the nine, um, the spot had to ship. And the producer says, Wherever we're at in the, in 15 minutes, that's what we're shipping. <laughs> oh, it's like, and no engineer wants something to ship out sounding bad because yeah. everyone who hears it doesn't know that you only had 15 minutes to pull it off. Yeah. And so the, the pressure is a really cool thing and also the worst thing about it because um, it definitely is much more pressure than a music session and, and excluding jingle sessions where I think some of that pressure is definitely there again, but a music session where basically everyone is there to create the best spot and, or spot the, you know, the best recording and the best performance and everything. Um, so with post, there's a little bit more um, intensity cause it's, there's a lot of time deadlines, artificial or not. Um, and so one of the things I learned first in post was like, sort of the broad strokes matter most. Um, for instance, when you're doing sound design, it's like you go through and, and you take care of everything that moves that might make an obvious big noise. And then you can go through another pass and take care of the, the smaller things that maybe you wouldn't hear, but, you know, like those are the details. And eventually you get into the things that, you know, 
you've got the mix perfectly. And then when the clients come in and they want the music raised and everything else, they're just lost, <laughs> but they're there. Yeah. Right, um, right. But sort of the, you know, think of to me a little bit like post-productions like that, um, you know, like music, you're building a house. It's there for all time. That is, you know, you want it to be perfect and everything's sanded and squared off perfectly. But, um, you know, a lot of the times in post-production, you're, you're more building like the set for a play and the front of it looks like a house. And then you walk around to the side and you're like, Oh my God, <laughs> there's a lot of missing stuff here. <laughs> Cause you're, 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 you're building the illusion. You're building the, you know, like you're, you're conveying the story essentially. And all the details don't matter as much as the story and what's in the message, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so that was one of the first things I learned was like, you know, because of these time constraints, move fast, pick your battles, get the big stuff done first. Then when you have time, you can get into the nooks and crannies and really finesse. Last question, Robert. What's the best piece of business advice that you either received from somebody or you learned along the way? Um, well, I, I would say, you know what? Like really good partners is one, you know, probably one of the biggest things you know yeah pick your partners um you know your your ideas that you share with with people and you know you have to have people that you trust because uh it can be the beginning of a great thing or it can be the beginning of something really stressful it's it's a little bit like a marriage um so pick your partners well uh, i guess that'd be one piece of business advice i guess you can find out more about Robert and Someone Audio Post at someone.com. That's spelled S-U-M-1. It's all one word, S-U-M-1, someone.com. And you can also find out about Source Connect at source-elements.com, source-elements.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it in iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.